is bring a message to give us some thoughts to prepare our hearts and our minds for uh, communion on this this coming Sunday. Um, whenever we have communion, we recognize and and uh, have brought up the point uh, regularly that we're it's a it's a celebration. It's a celebration of the communion that we have with God through Christ. It's also a celebration of the communion that we have with one another. Um, and when we have the communion service, we're um, we're we're putting forth, we're 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 reenacting, as it were, um, a, a spiritual reality with these physical elements that Christ has given us. He says to his uh, disciples in that first Lord's Supper. Uh, that this bread is my body, which is broken for you. This cup or this wine, this is the blood of the new covenant, the New Testament. And so when we focus on communion, our communion with the Lord, we're thinking about the fact that his body was broken for us, that the, uh, the new covenant that we have been brought into by grace has been sealed with his blood then it's really, it's entirely appropriate that we take a little bit of time uh, to focus on and to think about the sufferings of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Peter says Christ suffered for us once, suffered for sin once, the just for the unjust. And so every time we come to the communion table, it really is just another reminder of the fact that outside of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we do not belong here. Outside of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we really have no commonality here. There is no communion or fellowship of the saints outside of being clothed in His righteousness and washed in His blood. That's where we all stand. And so um, I want to spend tonight looking at um, Mark's account of the sufferings of Christ. And we're going to read in Mark chapter 15, uh, verses 15 through 33, and then we're going to make some, some comments there. So when we're thinking about communion, His body being broken, His blood being shed, we're, we're obviously talking about the work that Christ did for His people on the cross. And so let's go to Mark 15. We're going to read the account leading up to that. And we're going to spend some time thinking about the sufferings of Christ and the crucifixion. So Mark 15, I'm going to read from verse 15 to verse 33. This is where the account is laid out in Mark. So Mark 15, starting in verse 15, it says, And so Pilate willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall, 
called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one, Simon of Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place, Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days... Save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise, all the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend down, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. They that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So this section in Mark is what is commonly referred to as the the passion of Christ out of Acts chapter 1 verse 3. It just literally means the sufferings of Christ. And this is, we look at the crucifixion and we look at the events that were leading up to the crucifixion. This is the most significant event in human history. The event that filled the entirety, that fulfilled the entirety of the Old Testament is right here. The event where you and I find our standing before God in righteousness is right here. The event where you're sins were paid for and your forgiveness was secured is right here. And so it's appropriate at times that we come back and we reflect on what it really meant for Christ to suffer on behalf of His people. Not in a way that we uh, just... Glory in, in the, the, the gruesomeness of the scene necessarily for entertainment's sake. But the reality is scripture gives us a pretty detailed account of the human suffering. And then we only really get to guess about the sufferings of what it must have been like for the father to turn his back on the son. But the scriptures give us in a pretty detailed account of the sufferings of Christ and and what we're to do with that is to walk away amazed that God would love His people so much 
that he would subject his son to this and then some. Again, as I said earlier, we can't really even fathom the 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 suffering of what it meant for Christ to endure the penalty for every one of God's people's sin in that time of darkness and to do that all by himself as the Father turned away from him. But that won't keep us from at least thinking about some aspects of that. So when we come to chapter 15... Chapter 15 begins by saying, and straightway in the morning, the chief priest held consultation with the elders and and they take Jesus to Pilate. But just to set up the scene here, Christ was taken the night before in Gethsemane. They had what we call the kangaroo court there with the Sanhedrin. He had been up all night long. They had... um, physically abused him, they had uh, beat him, they had accused him, he had been on this trial before the religious leaders, and by the time we get to chapter 15, verse 1, that morning, Christ would have been, we're thinking about this from just a humanity standpoint, Christ would have been completely exhausted. We know that Pilate tries to um, appease the Jews by scourging Christ because he didn't really see a reason why Jesus ought to be killed. And he thought maybe if they were to scourge him, that, that, might, that might satisfy the, the Jews, which it did not. You know what it is. You've heard the accounts of what it means. As Jesus' back was laid bare, as he was tied to what amounts to a stump in the ground, and lash by lash, the flesh was ripped from his back. The reality is, physically speaking, By the time this part was finished, uh, his body would have gone into shock and he would have had uncontrolled muscle spasms that he just couldn't do anything but endure. As Jesus stands involuntarily having these spasms and bleeding, from the flesh that had been ripped from his back. And this really was part of the reason for scourging before crucifixion. It was, it was meant to, to speed up the death. Now, this is followed by Christ being mocked, beaten. He has this crown of thorns that were probably somewhere around uh, two inches long pressed into his head. When we think about thorns, um, you know, if we think about, for the most part, uh, the kind of briars and things we have around here, as painful as it can be to get snagged by one of those things, we're, we're not getting anywhere close. Uh, we're talking about thorns that were 
again, two inches thick, driven into his head with a reed. So here's Christ, exhausted, beaten, mocked, and he's forced to carry the crossbeam, the horizontal side, on his scourged back to the place where he would eventually be crucified. Of course, we know from the text that Jesus was so physically weak that he couldn't make it. They had to bring someone in to carry it the rest of the way. It's a pitiful scene. It's a scene that any of us would probably quickly look away from. And it's a scene that only took place because of my sins and your sins. It's a scene that at the same time tugs at our heart, but only plays out the way that it does because of the hardness of our heart. And so Christ goes to the cross. His hands or his wrist and his feet were nailed. He was crucified and as he's being crucified, he continues to be mocked. Of course, if you've heard much about the Roman cross, you know that this was the instrument of torture. Whenever Rome wanted to make an example, this is what they did. They would crucify. It wasn't, it wasn't abnormal for crucifixions to take place, but this was the uh, cruelest of the cruel. And this was done in a place that was highly visible, highly visible so that it might scare people into compliance. And so Christ is undergoing this horrendous physical suffering, torture. But then, as we see here, the Father forsakes Him. And He endures the wrath of God for every sin that every one of His people had or would ever commit. Now, I want you to think about really what this means. We have prayer requests on Wednesday nights. And the reason that we do that in a more uh, extensive way on Wednesday nights, the reason we do that and, and the reason that we pray for the individuals that we pray for is because our prayer really is that the Lord would would draw near to them. We pray for healing and we, we pray for um, that the Lord would resolve um, trials and those kinds of things. But ultimately, our prayer is that God would be with His people as they endure the difficulties and the afflictions of life, as they endure um, the cancers and the, uh, the, 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 the losing loved ones and the difficulties. Well, here's... Christ in the most difficult event that any human could ever possibly endure. 
And there is no prayer that the father would walk with him through this. He's on his own. The one who always did the will of the father. The one who always did what was pleasing to the father. Bears the most painful and by that, you know, the physical side we talked about is is bad enough. But as as we're, we're dealing with him paying for the penalty of sin. He's enduring a million hells all at once. And rather than finding help from the father in his time of need, rather than the father drawing near, he turns his back. Someone said, when we look at the cross, God turns the tables on the sacrificial system. Rather than the people sacrificing a prized possession to Him, He brings His most prized possession to the altar and He sacrifices His Son on our behalf. There is a real sense when we look at the cross in which it was the most difficult and at the same time, the most glorious act that God ever performed in history. God gave His only begotten Son. You know, there are times where we can, and for some ways I can, you know, rightfully so, but there are times where we can dehumanize God in the sense of, well, God could do this and not be moved by it. Because he's God. Well, there's plenty of things that God can do and he can do in his righteousness and he can do in his justice and he can do in his sovereignty. But brothers and sisters, for God the Father to turn his back on God the Son was not a neutral action. It pleased the Father to crush him on our behalf. That doesn't do away with the fact that God gave His only begotten Son. Why? Because He loved His people, that's why. Because this is what would be required if we would be brought back into communion with the Holy Trinity. Someone would have to pay the price for the rebellion, for the reality that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And no one could pay that price aside from Jesus Christ. So here he is. It's at the same time his lowest moment and his greatest moment. When we read in the Gospels, it becomes very, very clear that Jesus comes to the cross voluntarily. He lays down His life. This is what He wants to do. 
And when we look at a scene like this, we really have to stand back in amazement at the the sheer breadth of the love of Christ for His people. If Christ would do this, why would we be afraid to ask Him for anything? If the Father would give this, why would we be afraid to ask the Father for anything? How much does Jesus Christ love His people? Well, Mark 15, the other accounts lay that out very clearly. What are the depths that He's willing to go to care for, to complete, to execute the salvation that He has accomplished? Well, the description is difficult enough. I've read this before. It's been years ago. I think it's, it's, it's helpful in kind of getting the idea of what it must have been like. The description of crucifixion, the experience, this comes from a historical fiction book, but it's uh, helpful. I'm going to break into it as they describe the crucifixion of an individual. It says, They pounded spikes into the vertical beam near the base where the spikes should have gone through his ankles. And they bent his legs sideways so that when his feet were immobile, his thighs would cramp without any chance of respite. They bound his feet in such a way that the weight of his body on the spikes would make the iron bite cruelly into the arches of his feet. When the man was in place, they lifted him and secured the base. Arms wide, his body weight held only by the tight ropes around his wrist and by the one spike that was already driven into his hands. He pushed down with his feet to support himself. Within seconds, the spikes tore into his skin. To find relief from it, he sagged against the ropes bound tightly to his wrist against the spike in the center of his palm, and new pain flared into the skin there. The weight of his body tore against his arm muscles. This, however, wasn't the worst of it. Without his feet to support his weight, he was unable to expand his diaphragm with any effectiveness. Unable to draw even a quarter of a lungful of air, he began to suffocate. The sensation led him to unreasoning panic, and he pushed downward on his cramped legs, driving his torn feet into the spikes. He endured that pain as long as he could, then whimpered as he let his body hang from his arms again until suffocation drove him to push against his feet. Flies settled on his face, darting to the moisture of his eyes. He blinked repeatedly, but the flies kept returning in swarms. And this was only the first few minutes of crucifixion. I don't know about you, but that's a helpful description to me. When we think about what must this have been like. And so when we come to the communion service, and we're saying what Christ said, this is my body, which is broken for you. We're not talking about some neat, tidy, sanitized event that was a stroll in the park. We're talking about Christ's flesh being torn His lungs 
gasping for air that they just could not produce because of the weight of his body unless he endured the strategic pain inflicted by crucifixion were he to raise himself up. We're talking about all of this leading up to the full wrath of God poured out on him. And so as we think about that in light of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that the just endured this for the unjust, we must never forget that we and our sins are the cause of every single bit of this suffering. When we observe communion, that's part of what we're observing. What's your part in communion? Well, your part is that on the front end, you're the cause of every bit of this. I'm the cause of every bit of this. What's being represented as Christ hangs there on the cross is the fact that God was so offended and disgusted with my rebellion and with my sin that in order for that to be dealt with, He must crush His Son. And so I want to give four implications of the cross we ought to be thinking about as we move into communion. Number one, Christ allowed Himself to be sentenced unjustly and given over into the hands of wicked men that we might be set free from every charge on the day of judgment and be presented faultless before God the Father with exceeding joy. You say, whenever, you say whenever we say the cross is the center of, of, of what we're doing here, that's exactly what we mean. It's at the same time one of the most gruesome scenes, scenes in, in Scripture, and it's also the most comforting, the most uh, stabilizing, And one of the most joyful scenes that we find in Scripture. Why? Because brothers and sisters, we are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. Because we were there with Christ as the Father was pouring out the wrath that we deserved on Him. As He was condemned, we walked free. So that as you stand before Him now, you stand before Him not guilty. Not because God decided to wink His eye and throw your sin under the rug. It's because God decided to pour out everything that should have fallen on your head onto His Son. Jude talks about this in Jude 24. At least he talks about this concept of being presented faultless. You'll be familiar with this as he gets to the end of the the letter here and he says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. 
To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. When you look at the cross, you look at the only way that you could ever be presented to the Father as faultless, spotless, without any offense. Secondly, when Jesus was stripped of His garments, He's crucified naked before His enemies. So that we might not stand in shame before God. But that we might be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Very similar to what we just said. We're faultless from the standpoint that every single one of our sins have been forgiven. They've been dealt with. But we're spotless in the sense that whenever God looks at us now, there's nothing to condemn. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's as if we lived every minute of our life and made every decision of our life to the glory of God since the day we were born. Because you've been given the righteousness of Christ. You see, as we come before God and we're clothed in this righteousness, that, that, that gets rid of any reason for us to ever try to justify ourselves. That gets rid of any reason for us to ever be defensive about our sin. How could we be defensive about that which Christ freely died for? How, how, could, we, how could we try to justify what Christ bore on the cross? He gives us something better than petty defensiveness and Silly justifications. He wipes the the slate clean and gives us His righteousness as we stand before the Father. Third, the passage tells us that Jesus was counted as a transgressor and a sinner. And he was counted as a transgressor and a sinner so that we who are transgressors and sinners by nature and by practice might be reckoned innocent for Christ's sake. And so now we also have the power to count or to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Okay, You'll notice we're, we're, we're taking the realities of what happened what Christ has done for us, His righteousness, His forgiveness, His um, the imputation of, of His righteousness. And we're just kind of looking in different ways here. He was counted as a transgressor, but He certainly was not. And while we might be tempted to try to glory in our own self-righteousness at times. The reality is, you are counted as righteous, but you're not. You understand what I mean by that? 
you might be reckoned as righteous because you've been covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But that righteousness is no more yours as far as what came out of you than the sin that Christ paid for belonged to him. It's a, great, it's a swap. The just for the unjust. And so the righteousness that we have before God is not anything that's based on our performance. It's not anything that comes out of us. It's something that has been given to us. And it belongs to us and it was purchased for us as the Son of God allowed His body to be ripped to shreds and endured separation from the Father whom He had had perfect communion with from all eternity. Which is the last implication we'll mention here. Jesus, who had enjoyed fellowship with the Father from all eternity, was forsaken by Him so that we, who by nature have always been enemies of God, might be reconciled back to Him, restoring the fellowship that was lost in the garden so that we can go to passages like Romans 8, 35-39 and ask the question, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. Christ was willing to endure that separation from the Father to secure your relationship and your reconciliation with Him so that in reality it could never be separated and so that for our own comfort and confidence we could go back and rest our hearts in the reality that if He would give His Son for us, would He not also give us all things? And so, brothers and sisters, as we think about coming to the Lord's Supper on Sunday and celebrating what we've been given in Christ, as we break the bread and we do that remembering His body that was broken for us, as we drink the wine and in that remembering the seal, the blood of the new covenant. May we remember that we have brought, been brought into this covenant and we've been given this inheritance because of a suffering Savior who suffered and died on our behalf because He loved us and He redeemed us from the curse of the law so that now we enter into this communion celebration with joy. How do we respond to the sufferings of Christ? Well, the appropriate response is love. I love Him. I love Him because He would go to this extent to show His love for me. You see, we, we, we don't really go all the way if we look at the sufferings of Christ and say, I just feel so guilty, I feel so ashamed, I feel so unworthy. Well, all that stuff is true. That's why He's suffering. But this suffering was meant to lead to the communication of the Father's love to His people so that we in turn might respond in love to Him as we celebrate 
this glorious redemption that we've been given in Christ. And so I pray that we'll prepare our hearts the rest of the week as we prepare to come to the Lord's table and to celebrate this together once again. Let's pray. Father, we... uh, We thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You for um, the plan of redemption that You had covenanted with Yourself from all eternity that You would orchestrate in order to save Your people, that You would execute in order to bring Your people back into relationship with Yourself. Father, we thank You that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we could not live. We thank You that He endured the horrific human suffering that we just uh, uh, we, we, we don't understand how a human could bear. And then, Father, we also thank You as we recognize, because You've communicated it, we can't even wrap our minds around this, that He endured the full weight of Your wrath for every one of your people's sins. And so that the best we can do is say with Isaiah that it pleased you to crush him. And so, Father, I pray that we would not downplay the cross, that we would not insult your son by appealing to some silly form of self-righteousness, by being defensive over the sins that you've paid for, that you've died for, but that we would glory in the cross and that You would bless us to be able to see it for what it is. We thank You for loving us. We thank You for Your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.